So page 1186, 1 Thessalonians chapter 1. Paul, Silas and Timothy, to the church of the Thessalonians in God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, Christ, grace and peace to you. We always thank God for all of you, mentioning you in our prayers. We continually remember before our God and Father your work produced by faith, your labour prompted by love, and your endurance inspired by hope in our Lord Jesus Christ. For we know, brothers loved by God, that he has chosen you, because our gospel came to you not simply with words, but also with power, with the Holy Spirit and with deep conviction. You know how we lived among you for your sake. You became imitators of us and of the Lord. In spite of severe suffering, you welcomed the message with the joy given by the Holy Spirit. And so you became a model to all the believers in Macedonia and Achaia. The Lord's message rang out from you, not only in Macedonia and Achaia. Your faith in God has become known everywhere. Therefore, we do not need to say anything about it, for they themselves report what kind of reception you gave us. They tell how you turn to God from idols to serve the living and true God and to wait for his son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, Jesus, who rescues us from the coming wrath. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Thanks, Catherine. Well, do keep that passage open in front of you and uh, we'll have a little look at it. Together. Well, I guess this is, as I was saying to a few people earlier, this is probably the very last day of the year where it's acceptable to say Happy New Year. Um, tomorrow it'll be the, you know, the second Monday in 2018, so we don't get away with it. So, Happy New Year. I hope it started well for you. I hope it was a good Christmas. Um, Happy New Year is an odd thing to say on one level because for, new, uh, for most of us, New Year has a mixed feel to it. It's well known to be a year, time of year when that people do find really quite difficult. Um, partly because it's a case of looking back on a year that has often, for most of us, at least been mixed and for some of us been terrible. It's about looking ahead to a year that is unknown and sometimes can feel quite shaky and, and make us feel quite vulnerable. Um, it is at very least a time for at least a little bit of introspection, isn't it? At some point over that New Year period, most of us, even if it's just a fleeting thought as the fireworks go off or as we endure Jules Holland again, um, uh, have that moment where we think about what sort of person that we are or would like to be. The whole business of New Year's resolutions is pretty much about that, isn't it? I would love to be a different person, whether in size and shape or in attitude and outlook or in approach to my work than I am now. Or maybe we think simply about the life that we're living what we've done over 2017. Um, Facebook sort of pops up those photos, you know, a year ago, five years ago, eight, ten years ago, which in, in, to me so far has been nothing short of a shock. You, you, you look at photos from a few years ago and you look, well, in my case, less grey um, and, uh, and younger and fitter and all of those sorts of things. Uh, New Year is quite mixed. And there are those moments in the midst of New Year where we ask big questions about, well, what, what difference am I making in my life? What difference has my life made over the past year? What, uh, what difference might my life make over the coming year? How do I know what this life is meant to be shaped by and like? How am I to live a life that I feel better about and that feels better to me and that makes more of a difference? And on the face of it, it is pretty well counterintuitive to imagine that a letter 
written 2,000 years ago in a different part of the world, in a different language, to a bunch of people we've never met, could have anything even vaguely relevant to say to our sense of questioning life. What is my life meant to look like? Where is my life meant to be heading? The thought that in this techno-ridden, media-obsessed, quite fearful-feeling, fast-moving world, words written in the Mediterranean region 2,000 years ago in Greek to a little bunch of Christians could have anything to do with us seems bizarre. That this faith described by Paul in this letter could be at all relevant to us today, could give us a relevant faith, the theme of our first few sermons over this term. Seems bizarre. And yet, the truth is that for every single one of those 2,000 years since this letter was written, actually it's slightly under 2,000 years, this letter was probably written in AD 50, possibly AD 51, so just under 2,000 years. In every single one of those years since Paul wrote these words, this book has been precisely counted as relevant to those who've read it that countless Christians, billions of Christians, down 2,000 years, have read these words and have gone, this helps me to know how to live a faith that is relevant to life and how to shape the life that I'm trying to live. The faith that Paul describes here, in other words, down through all of those centuries, has exactly addressed the sorts of questions that you and I have been thinking about over the past week. It's been giving a shape to a faith that is real, that is relevant, that is right for today. We're going to be working our way through this um, remarkable letter. It was a letter written by Paul, we think, um, at the time um, in Corinth, uh, to a church that he'd helped found. Um, Roughly speaking, sometime around AD 49, uh, Paul, with some of his companions, arrives in Thessalonica. Uh, It's a, a, a town and what we think of as Greece now. Uh, It was a Roman outpost, but it was primarily Greek-speaking and not quite a sort of, uh, it wasn't sort of a Roman garrison town, but it was still absolutely devoted to the cult of the emperor. Uh, The emperor um, was was seen as a a god and part of your way of showing that you were loyal to the, the empire of Rome was to show that you counted him as highly as everybody else did. And Paul arrives with his companions, and according to Acts 17, they go and they find a synagogue. You only had to have 10 um, uh, adult male Jews to to be able to form a synagogue in those days. So there was a synagogue in the city, and Paul went at least over three Sabbaths and told them about, well, all the promises in the Old Testament that, that had been pointing forward to the coming of this anointed king, the one who would come and rescue his people, the one who would come and change lives. And then he talks about Jesus. And he says, you know, all these promises that God has made, they're fulfilled in Jesus. And people start to ask him questions, and he begins to teach in somebody's house. And people start to come to faith. And then people start to get scared. What they're scared of is that word will get back to the empire. Sounds like a Star Wars movie, doesn't it? Um, This is the Roman Empire. Word will get back to the empire that somehow people are beginning to worship someone other than the emperor. They're beginning to count this Jesus as being the King of Kings, the Lord of Lords. And so Paul and his friends are smuggled out of the city of Thessalonica um, uh, at night, and they escape first to Berea um, and then elsewhere, and eventually end up in Corinth. And in Corinth, Timothy comes, having gone back to visit Thessalonica, and brings him news of this church that he'd founded. 
It was maybe only a year or so, maybe a few months. But Paul was clearly desperate to know what had happened to this little bunch of Christians that he'd left behind him. How would they have dealt with the pressures on them, the pressure to conform, the pressure to live a sort of double life, you know, maybe meeting in secret to worship Jesus, and then the rest of the week, their Monday through, well, I was going to say Monday through Saturday life, it would be their Sunday through Friday life, um, the Sabbath being probably a different to to ours. Um, uh, Pretending, as it were, not to know this Jesus. How would they have worked out? Would they have been able to integrate their faith into the midst of their everyday lives? Would they have kicked over the traces or would they have been willing in the face of persecution to keep following Jesus? And what he hears absolutely delights him. Paul, Silas and Timothy, to the church of the Thessalonians and God, the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, grace and peace to you. We always thank God for you remembering you in our prayers. In other words, great news. I've heard good news. Your faith has been made strong. Your faith has gone deep. And then what he does over these next few verses is very simply outline a shape to that faith. It's very simple. It's very clear. And what we find is that over 2,000 years, it hasn't changed. It's the same shape of faith then as now. It's the same shape to faith and how it works and how it takes root in somebody's life now as 100 years ago, as 500 years ago, as 1,500 years ago, as back then. It's the same shape to faith if you speak Greek in the New Testament form or in the modern form. It's the same shape to faith, whatever culture you come to, come from, whatever background you're from. This shape of faith is real and relevant. And it has to do with one basic attitude. One single word that sums up what faith is meant to be about and what life shaped healthily, not just for a new year, but for every year, is meant to be about. And that word is simply this, gratitude. Gratitude. It's the single most important virtue in the whole of the Christian life because it describes the order in which faith happens It describes the motivation and the underpinning for how we live. It describes what is to surround us and underpin us every day of our lives. Simply gratitude for what God has done for us. Now, on the face of it, that's not terribly controversial. You don't have to be a Christian or a person of faith at all to recognize that actually what we have in this life, we should be grateful for. Somebody tweeted this week, if you have money, power, and status today... It's largely due to the century and the place in which you were born, to the talents and capacities that you were born with, none of which you earned. In short, all your resources are a gift. It's not terribly controversial. The place in which we were born, the time at which we were born, the particular gifts and talents we were born with are gifts. Without them, we wouldn't be the people that we are. If you'd been born another century, another place, with or without some of the talents that you have now, your life would look very different. You would have less money or more money. You would be living in a nicer house or a worse house or no house at all. You might have a family or not have a family. These are gifts that we receive. But Paul takes it further. And what he wants to say to us is that faith itself comes out of a sense of what God has gifted us. Listen to all these words that he uses from verse 4 onwards that are effectively gifting words. 
God giving to us before we've done anything for him. Verse 4, for we know, brothers and sisters, loved by God, you've been loved. God loves you before you ever love him back. He has chosen you. He doesn't say you chose God. He says God chose you first. Verse 5, because our gospel came to you. This good news was delivered to them. Paul arrives in the city. They didn't go out to find him. He came and found them. It was a gift, this good news of Jesus. And it came with power, with the Holy Spirit, with deep conviction. God, by his Holy Spirit, has gifted them this good news of Jesus. They didn't even know they needed good news. They didn't even know it was out there. But God puts it in their laps. You know how we lived among you for your sake. They had an example to follow. They had somebody in front of them who was a gift to them. In other words, faith begins and is underpinned by and is shaped by this simple conviction that God loves us before we even know of him. That God in Jesus has done everything that needed to be done for us before we ever needed, knew it needed to be done. That God has given to us before we even had the hands out ready to receive. See, the danger of, of the book of Thessalonians comes in verse 3. It's a dangerous verse. And it's a dangerous verse because on the one hand, it can be incredibly badly misunderstood. But it can also be dangerous positively because once we get it, it can turn our lives upside down and inside out. It's dangerous negatively because we think it sounds like that faith is all to do with working harder. Verse 3, we remember your work produced by faith, your labor prompted by love, your endurance inspired by hope. Now, that's the language of New Year's resolutions, isn't it? Work, labor, endurance. Pretty much every New Year's resolution I've ever heard anybody describe fits into one of those categories. I'm going to go to the gym. That's pretty much all of those things. I'm going to eat less fat. I'm going to drink less wine. I'm going to spend less time on my phone. I'm going to spend more time with my kids. What, I mean... Whatever it is, your news resolution might be. It's work, it's labor, it's endurance. And the lie that's given to us is effectively your path to a better new year, your path to a more fulfilled, better shaped life, a healthier life, is work harder, labor more, endure better. And it sounds on the face of it like Paul is saying to us, yeah, yeah, that's what I'm giving thanks for. You Thessalonians, well done. You've worked hard, you've labored, you've endured. Good on you. Now you can receive something good from God. That's not what he means at all. What he actually says is that this work is of faith. That this labor comes out of love. That this endurance is inspired by, by faith, by hope. Faith, love, hope. In other words, the gifts of God to us are what give us the ability to labor, to work, to endure. God gives to us before we ever do anything for him. If I'm going to work hard, then it comes out of the gift of faith that God's given to me. Otherwise, it's just me working harder and harder and harder and going round and round in circles. If I'm going to labor, it's meant to flow out of the love of God that's been poured into me in Jesus. If I'm going to endure then it's inspired by the promises of God that he's given to me. And what does this gift that's been placed in front of them do? What does this gratitude grow into? Well, the first thing it does is it changes their minds. 
verse 9. They tell how you turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God. It changes their allegiance. They have up to this point been saying that the heart of their life, the most important thing in their world, is maybe the emperor. That's one, if you like, physical idol. There were statues of the emperor around you were meant to worship. Or it might be simply the idol of their wealth or their status, their place in society. But he says, when you realize that you're on the receiving end of this incredible gift of God, the person of Jesus Christ who lived and died and rose again for you, when you realize that God loves you like that, then it changes your mind. It changes your allegiance. Now, that's a lifelong battle to change. We always slide back to those old idols. We think we've got one sorted and we find ourselves coming back and worshipping our career or we find ourselves coming back and worshipping our status or our place amongst our friends. Or we come back and find we've made an idol out of our health or our looks or what's in the bank. But day by day, this being on the receiving end of God's gift changes our minds. It changes our allegiance. It helps us to turn, as Paul says, from idols to serve God. But as it does that, it then gives me a reason to pass that good news on. If you've been given something beautiful, something that is shareable, then actually there's a huge motivation to pass it on to those that you love, to those that you know. If you've ever been the recipient of really good news in your family life or in your working life, that the, the most important thing you want to do is you want to share it. I don't know whether you've ever thought about how odd it is when you're standing looking at a sunrise or a sunset that is beautiful, that you want to say to the person who's looking at exactly the same sunrise or sunset as you, isn't that beautiful? To which presumably the logical answer is, uh, yeah, I'm looking at the same thing you are. Why do you want to talk about it? It's just look. Now that's partly because I'm a, you know, talk to think person, but it's more than that. As human beings, actually the appreciation of something beautiful, the reception of a gift actually is even more remarkable when it's shared. We want to tell somebody about it. We want to include somebody else in it. If we realize this gift of God that we've been given, the life and death and resurrection of Jesus, this love that knows no bounds, then as well as changing our allegiance, helping us to put God first rather than all these idols in our lives, it also should be motivating us to want to pass it on. Or as perhaps we haven't really started to appreciate it in all its beauty. If it's that good, why would you keep it for yourself? But that gift also is meant to take root in our lives and help us to embody the very gift that we're appreciating. You see it there in the end of verse 6. I'm sorry, in verse 7. You became a model to all the believers in Macedonia and Achaia. The Lord's message rang out from you, not only in Macedonia and Achaia, your faith in God has become known everywhere. In other words, as that gift takes root in your life, as it bring, brings labor and work and endurance, as it shapes who you are as a person, actually you then begin to embody the very good news that you've been given. And it means that other people then begin to be able to read your life. If your life was a book... What would other people read? If your life was a book, I don't just mean somebody wrote down what you did, but somebody looks at you, 
the way that you do your work, the way that you relate to your neighbor, the type of parent you might be, the type of friend that you are, uh, the way that you spend your time, the way you spend your money, the way you, where you put your energies. If your life was that sort of book and somebody was coming to it and opening up the pages, what would they read? The staggering thing about the Thessalonians that Paul is claiming here is that because they are living a life of gratitude, because they've appreciated the good news of Jesus that's been given to them, because it's changed their allegiance, because it's given them that motivation to tell others and to live it out, their lives are like a book about Jesus. That when people look at them, they begin to see something of the life and good news of Jesus. That when people see their attitudes, they begin to see something of God's attitudes. That when people hear their words, they begin to hear something of God's words. That when people see the way that they live, they begin to see the way that God lives in them. And what this ambassador's booklet talks about, and what the, this letter of the Thessalo- to the Thessalonians talks about, is that actually our lives are meant to be readable like that. That if somebody were to do a fly-on-the-wall documentary of your life on a given day, in any month of any year, there should be at least the beginnings of glimpses of the life of God in us. Not because we're trying harder than the next person. Not because we are somehow a better person because we've labored harder, worked harder, endured more. But because simply we've appreciated the gift that God's given us. I'm not going to ask you to put up your hands, but my hunch is that there'll be at least a couple of people here who've joined a gym in January. Um, The stats say that gyms around the country see a huge spike in joining um, every January and that their their sort of uh, model of um, uh, profit model is based on the fact that a huge percentage of those who join in January go two or three times and never go again, but never quite get around to cancelling. Um, either because they forget or because they keep hoping they're going to go back. Now, I'm sure that's none of us here, but that, let's just assume that you might be familiar with that sort of uh, model. Now, here's the thing about the gym. Going to the gym is hard work, and it can produce some results. But it's all about R producing the results, isn't it? If you go, you build some muscle, you build some stamina, you start to look a little bit better in the mirror, it feels good. If you don't go, not so much. But it's all about you. You have to motivate yourself to go. I want to suggest that the model that we've heard that Paul is writing about is not so much about the gymnasium but the dance floor. That what we're invited to is to respond to something that is already there, to respond to the music of God's love. Now, actually, dancing, if you ever do it properly, is hard work. You probably do spend some time in the gym. You certainly have to work hard at it. You have to practice it. There are probably days when you don't feel like doing it. There are certainly days where you don't quite get it right. It takes a lot of practice. But fundamentally, as a dancer, you're responding to the music. You're responding to something that is there, that's around you, that's a gift. And I think that, for Paul, would have been a really good image of the life of faith. God sings this song of love over us. God gives us this music of his love. It's a given. It's what our lives are plunged into in baptism. It's what this year is going to be about. God is never going to stop singing his music of love over you in 2018. Whoever you are, wherever you've come from, however well or badly you know him, whether you dance or not, that's the song. What you're invited into. It'll take hard work. There'll be some labor in it. It'll take some endurance. 
But what you're invited into is a dance of a response to that gift. A dance that will then spread that good news to others, that will invite people into it, and that will help others to respond themselves. That, to me, is a great New Year's resolution. To resolve to listen to the music of God's love more. To resolve to enjoy the gift of God's love each day. To ask that same question as that book is suggesting every day of my life. Where have I seen God today? If you want to put it a different way, where have I heard the music of God's love today? And how have I responded? That's a great resolution. And that will produce an effect in other people's lives. Let's pray together. Jesus, thank you for the music of your love. Thank you for the gift that you've given us in your life and death and resurrection. Thank you for the way that that music surrounds us every step of our way through this year. And we want to pray simply this, that as we hear it, as we learn more of it, as we recognize that we are loved with that sort of love, that we would increasingly live lives of grateful response. And that as we work and labor and endure, as we tell the good news to others, that you would shape our lives and help us to dance to the tune of your love for us. In Jesus' name, amen.